Reading from Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the count of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to the dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing the flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. 
after all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't here, isn't there. What? Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is God's word. Well, we've already prayed, so uh, let's get straight into this fantastic little story. We're going to be here for the next couple of months, and you may be wondering why. Let me put it very simply. The Bible teaches that God is in charge of every single second of all of history. That he's in charge of the vibration of every single atom in the entire universe. And therefore, there is not a single detail of your life that God does not hold in his hand. So what? So nothing can stop this God doing the good things he has purposed to do in us and through us and around us for his glory. Nothing can stop this God. And getting our heads around that really, really matters. This is not a a small academic point that theologians like to work out, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And it matters because God is not going to give you a running commentary explaining why everything is happening every moment in your life. That is not the way God works. Much of the time we live in darkness. What God does do is tell us in the Bible exactly what he is like and assure us that he has everything in his hands. He tells us, I'm in control, trust me and let me show you what I'm like. So don't expect God to explain everything that doesn't make sense in your life, but do expect God to tell you enough in the Bible that you can put your hand in his hand and say, I will trust you, lead me safely, please. And in these chapters in Genesis, and especially in the history of the Old Testament, what we see God do, uh, in particular in the, the story of Joseph, is show us he is a God who is relentlessly, unstoppably good. Even when life is grim and confusing, even when the circumstances are impossibly stacked against him, here is a God who always, always does what he said he will do. Nothing can ever stop him. God is working behind the scenes for our good. It is his hand that is in the glove of human history. 
We cannot see him. Often we do not understand what he is doing, but we do know it is him, and we do know he is good. Uh, The great 17th century Westminster Confession explains this thing as providence. That's its word, providence. You'll see in, um, you'll probably lose your eyesight if you try and read it. I printed it out quite so small on the back of the service sheets. But uh, there's a wonderfully full definition of what what this means, this providence of God. Let me read it. God, the creator, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes and governs all creatures, actions and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable, that means unchangeable, counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness and mercy." Or in other words, nothing can stop God doing the good things he has planned. Nothing. And when our lives, or the lives of people we know and love, get messy and dark and difficult to understand, we really need a firm grasp on this truth. Because if we don't, we will lose our faith in God, or just as bad, we'll lose our faith that God is good. Or we'll be just so crippled with doubt and bitterness that we are incapable of loving him, incapable of serving other people in his world for his glory. And in one sense, we'll find as we go through the summer that all 14 chapters of the story of Joseph teach the same truth. But it's worth coming back Sunday after Sunday. It's not, okay, job done, great. One Sunday and I'm done for 14 weeks. It doesn't work like that. Because each episode builds on and embeds and consolidates the truth and teaches us different facets of it. And it's as we see this wonderful truth of God's character at work in history unfolded through the ups and downs and the twists and turns, slowly, chapter by chapter, that the lesson of God's trustworthiness and his sovereign goodness sinks down from our heads and into our hearts. And let me tell you, this teaching is basically like a parachute. It is a parachute. Uh, A parachute is something that... Once you need it, by the time you need a parachute, it's a little bit late to be reading the instructions. Okay, pull on, tab. Once you're at the stage, you've got to jump out of the plane. You really need to have read the instructions sometime before. Don't wait until life gets difficult or confusing before you invest yourself in trying to understand how God works in history. Before you uh, give yourself to working out whether you can trust this God. You need to work it out now because of what will come later so that you can pull the ripcord and not smash down hard when life gets really hard. You see, the most important thing I can tell you in one sense is that life will get hard. If your life is easy, live a little longer. Uh, All of us will face that. Uh, Job says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. In other words, in this fallen world, we will hit hard times. The question is, will I run to God or away from God in hard times? And the answer to that is determined by what I've worked out about the character of God in the good times. Uh, One more thing, though, before we actually get into the story, and that is that we'll never understand what God is up to unless we get that God's priority for you is not so much your happiness as your holiness. 
Uh, Romans 8, 28 puts it this way. We had, uh, it, it's on the front of the sheets, but let me read through to verse 29. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And we will see in these stories that God brings all manner of hardships and tragedies and difficulty into the lives of this family, Jacob's family. And he does so because he is at work to make something of them. He's got something better planned than just giving them a lovely, comfortable life. And in particular, for the three J's, for Jacob, for Judah, and for Joseph, God is at work to build beautiful character in them so they are ready to be used in his great purposes. So if you like, uh, actually it's not, so, it's not technically right to say that uh, God's priority is our holiness, not our happiness. It's better to say God's priority is our eternal happiness rather than our earthly comfort. And so sometimes God is willing to let us walk through times of profound discomfort here on earth so that we will be ready to enjoy eternity and the profound happiness that he has in store for us there. You see, you and I forget, or we just don't believe, that sin is dehumanizing and destructive. And the reason that most of us, if we're honest, the the most honest prayer we could pray is, God, just make my life easy right now. You know, most of us can't be crass enough to actually pray that, but deep down we'd love to be able to pray that. Wouldn't that be great if I could pray that? Oh, please. The reason that's not a great prayer to pray is that sin will kill you and sin will ruin everything. And so God is good when he uses even difficult, painful things to wean us off sin, to draw us back to real and lasting happiness, which is found alone in him. Okay, let's get into the story. Uh, Turn up uh, Genesis chapter 37. We need to get our bearings quickly, though, as we dive in. Uh, Jesus taught the disciples, you'll remember, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, that the Old Testament is not just a random series of stories. It is one unfolding story. Salvation history. God's narrative of what he is doing to redeem the world. So you remember, right at the start, uh, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve turned away from God and they brought death and disease and destruction into this world. But God immediately set out to restore what they'd opened the floodgates to to and ruined. Uh, And in Genesis 3.15, the first promise, positive promise that God makes in the Bible, he curses the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve. And he says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, God would send a serpent crusher. One, to destroy the devil and to reverse all his evil works. And the big Bible story takes on a narrower focus by the time you get to Genesis 12, where God chooses one man from one family named Abraham and says, I will bring about this redemption, this global reconciliation, this restoration through your family, your offspring. And so Satan's attacks are then focused on this family. Abraham and his son Isaac and his sons Esau and the promise-bearing son Jacob and now Jacob's family. So the point is, as we read through the story, which we call the story of Joseph, but it's really the story of Jacob and his sons, there is a lot more at stake than can God make things go well for this stupid family. At stake 
is God's plan to redeem the world. Let's get into the story. Verses 1 to 11. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. That's the land God promised to Abraham. This is the account of Jacob, or Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Oh dear. You don't get very far before you realise that Andrew Lloyd Webber didn't read his Bible very carefully when he started his musical. If there's one thing Jacob is not, it is a fine example of a family man. God created us in families and for families, and so it is no great surprise that Satan attacks the family. But I hope it is a great encouragement to those of us who've got, well, messy families to see the sort of family that God is willing to work through and able to bring about his purposes through. I don't care what your family is like. If he can use this family, he can be involved in any of our families. Firstly, uh, look at their family. Verse 2, Jacob has foolishly married multiple wives. Now, people often think that the Bible says it's all right in the book of Genesis to marry lots of wives because, well, they're all at it, basically. But the point is, in Genesis 2.24, right at the start, God makes it abundantly clear. Marriage is one man, one woman, becoming one flesh. The rest of the book of Genesis doesn't say it's all right to ignore that and marry lots of women. The rest of the book of Genesis is basically like one of those adverts they have uh, for drink, well, not for drink driving, against drink driving, where they show the aftermath of a car crash and say, you know, don't drink drive, this is what will happen. That is what Genesis is. Don't marry lots of women if you're a man, because look at what a mess you'll make. And secondly, as well as uh, having ignored God's wisdom for, for marriage, we see that this family is torn apart by favoritism and infighting. Now, Jacob has changed an awful lot since we met him earlier in the book of Genesis. But he's an idiot in one sense. He's still stupid and sinful enough that he loves Joseph more than the other brothers. And that's stupid. See, Joseph is the son of his favourite wife, Rachel, and Joseph is born to him in his old age, and he cannot help but indulge his favouritism for this son, Joseph. He gives him this rich, ornate robe, this robe of many colours, as some translations has it, in verse 3. But God calls parents to love and discipline children. 
Jacob again ignores God's wise ways for families, and again, it's a car crash as a result. See, his foolish, indulgent love for Joseph. Do you see the word that's stressed again and again in those first 11 verses? Hate, hate, hate. Joseph is loved in a foolish, extravagant way by his father, and the result is that Joseph is hated by everybody else. It's the narrator's way of saying that Jacob's foolish love fails utterly. And the thing is, it doesn't just sour the brothers, it also ruins Joseph. I mean, it's hard to read these verses and not want to punch him. (laughs) Be honest. I mean, would you want a brother like Joseph? No. Telling tales, verse 2. Parading around in his rich robe. He's got this amazing ornate robe. He's trekking in the wilderness. But no, I've got to have my rich robe. I wouldn't want my brothers to see me without the symbol of my father's favoritism and honour and authority. He should be wearing a Gore-Tex jacket, not a many-coloured robe. But no, that's Joseph. And then there are the dreams. You know, Imagine the scene at breakfast. The, the hardy shepherd brothers tucking into their porridge. Uh, Joseph wanders down, sipping his soy latte, chai, whatever it is, decaf, and says, listen, everybody, I've had a dream. And it's not exactly Martin Luther King. What follows is, I am going to rule all of you. And he tells it to them twice. I mean, what kind of a brat is not embarrassed about a dream like that? I'm one of the youngest brothers. This is wrong. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have dreams about me ruling the family. But not Joseph. <laughs> it's interesting that when he tells the dream about his father bowing down, Jacob finally steps in and rebukes him. And you wonder whether that's the first time he's ever told him off. But Jacob's indulgent special treatment has spoiled Joseph. He's ruined the thing he loves And here's a lesson for us. He's ruined the thing he loves because he refuses to love it in the way that God tells him to. Now, when we get to the end, it's just worth knowing that uh, we'll realise that the dreams are God's word. They are God's prophecy. The Spirit gave him those dreams. And the dramatic tension for us is that as the story goes on, it just seems ridiculous. More ridiculous by the end of the chapter than at the beginning. I mean, how on earth are these dreams going to be fulfilled, given what happens in the rest of this chapter? The odds are just stacked against God. Okay, what is the for us in the the start of this chapter in these first 11 verses? We'll leave the big lesson of the chapter till the end. But even here, there is a very simple lesson for you and me. Obey God. God is your creator. God knows what is best for you and for me, better than you and I know ourselves. When we obey him, we are walking in the path of his blessings. When we disobey him, we are walking in the path of destruction and damage. We bring misery. And it's not just on ourselves. It's on other people that we bring misery when we walk away from God and follow our own ways. And you see, the interesting thing is, what is Jacob doing in choosing Joseph as his favourite and in marrying lots of uh, wives and concubines and all sorts? What he's doing is he's doing what everybody else is doing. Cultures around him, that's what you did. Jacob is just behaving like everybody else. He's ignoring God and trusting the wisdom of his culture. But look at the mess and the misery and the lasting damage that comes. It is really basically a question of faith. Do I trust that when God says no to something in his word, and society says, no, this is good, do I trust God 
or do I trust culture? Who do I believe? What do you mean you'd only date and marry a Christian? I mean, that is just ridiculous. That narrows the field so much. I mean, seriously, you need to lighten up a bit. You, you wouldn't go on holiday, just the two of you. How are you supposed to grow a relationship and know whether you're right to get married if you don't go away on holiday together? I mean, come on. You guys, you just you got a bit extreme, if you ask me. Who do I trust? And if the Holy Spirit is pricking your conscience right now, don't ignore him. Don't harden your heart. Don't believe the lie that when God says no, he's keeping you from fun and adventure and fulfillment. He's not. He's keeping you from damage and misery and pain. Fullness of life and joy are found in following God. Genesis tells us that again and again and again. So obey the God of the Bible. Well, secondly, verses 12 to 36, the devil is in the detail. That's what we often say. But here, we'll find it's the sovereign Lord who is in the detail. Uh, As the story is carried along by this weird series of lucky coincidences all the way. Uh, So the 11 brothers are toughing it out in the fields, looking after Jacob's flock, while Joseph is living it up at home. Verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. Perhaps it's been a while with no word, but anyway, if you've read the chapter or two before, you'll understand why Jacob is a little bit twitchy. See, back in chapter 5, the brothers had been to Shechem before. And it's not a story you read before 9pm. Jacob basically ignored things, left them to their own devices. His daughter got raped. Two of his sons deceived an entire town and slaughtered all the men in revenge. And Reuben, his eldest son, slept with one of his half-wives, his concubine. So you can understand, when they're back in Shechem, Jacob is nervous, and rightly so. So he's keen to find out what will happen, and he sends Joseph to walk the 50 miles uh, all the way to Shechem, to the north. Verse 15 just sounds so apt, doesn't it, for the dreamer. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what on earth are you looking for? It could all have ended there. No sign of the brothers. But he just happens to bump into a man who just happened to bump into Joseph's brothers, who just happened at that very moment to be discussing where they would go next. Verse 16. He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? Oh, they've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. It's about 13 miles away. What are the chances of that? Off goes Joseph. Um, I doubt it was hot pursuit, but uh, he wanders his way and eventually makes it. And you wonder if this uh, coat really was pretty spectacular because we read in verse 18, but they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. And here, the narrator gives us a subtle hint or two that there is something bigger going on here than just some sibling rivalry kicking off in a big way. Look at verse 19 to 20. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. There has been an awful lot of bloodshed in the early chapters of Genesis. 
But this is the first time this particular word for kill has appeared since Genesis chapter 4 and the murder of one brother by another, Cain killing Abel. The narrator is subtly saying the serpent is at it again, trying to kill the promise. The other clue is the, uh, the repetition in verse, um, that appears at either end of verses 19 and 20 of their contempt for the dreams. Subtly, the writer is telling us God's plan is being mocked. <laughs> Let's see what God can do. Eleven brothers, wilderness, one young fool, it's a no-brainer. God's plan will be destroyed. Reuben, the eldest brother, is pathetic, self-serving, and uh, just a useless leader throughout. But at least he does stall things in verse 21. When Reuben heard of this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him so, uh, from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So the cisterns were these, uh, these big water containers, uh, I guess about the depth of the balcony maybe. And um, if you look at the back of the church, turn around, you'll see the arches above the door. They'd be sort of shaped like that. So a narrow bit at the top, and then they'd carve out the rocks, so there'd be a big like a bottle shape, uh, to store water. But this one's empty, so they just chuck him down in it. He doesn't drown, but he can't get out. And just as the brothers sit down to enjoy food and drink, and no doubt uh, chew loudly while their starving brother wallows in the pit beneath them, they spy an Ishmaelite or Midianite camel train heading to Egypt. Verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. What a coincidence that the brothers end up settling for pasture land on the trading route. What a coincidence that just as they've thrown Joseph into the cistern, the Ishmaelite train comes passing by. Uh, Son number four now takes charge. Judah has a slight pang of conscience. He'd rather not shed his brother's blood. But he's also got an eye for business, so he thinks we can make a a fast buck here. Verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? When he says gain, he's talking financially there. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. How very noble. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Can you imagine that? I grew up with a younger sister and an older brother. And in my mind, at least, they were about as annoying as siblings could be for large chunks of my childhood. But to sell into slavery your own flesh and blood, this is a seriously messed up family we've got here. Of course, they still have to work out what to tell Jacob, their father, when they get back home. And here, it really pays to have read the rest of Genesis, because there is dripping irony in these verses. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. Again, tearing of clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? 
Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in his blood. They took the richly ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see whether it is not our brother's, but your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. See, some years earlier, Jacob was a very scheming young man, and he wanted the inheritance that was rightfully his older brother Esau's. And so he deceived his own father. How did he do it? By slaughtering a goat and tearing some of his brother's clothes. The sins of the fathers are visited on the next generation. You see, sins like that, we think we can be in control of it, but it never quite works out that way. Sin has tentacles. It always reaches out further than we'd ever planned or realised it could. Don't think you're in control of your sin. Well, the story's not over for Joseph. There is a hint that all is not lost, that there is more to come in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So things are not over. We know what happens to him. Even in this chapter, though, uh, long before anything good has even happened, we do see subtle signs that God is working his extraordinary plans. Okay, you may be asking, uh, all right, so uh, how in the New Testament, where, how is this a Christian story? Where's Jesus in all of this mess? Well, in one sense, we've got to wait till we see the whole of the Joseph story unfold before we work that out. But even here, we can see some subtle hints right at the start, some faint shadows. In this story, we see Joseph hated, rejected, with some reason, sold, condemned, cast down into a pit before being raised up, and then eventually he will be exalted to be ruler and will save people from all over the world. Jesus was hated and rejected with no good reason. He was sold and condemned and cast into the pit of death itself before being raised and exalted much higher to save not just the people of the known world, but of all the world for all time, for all eternity. There is a faint echo, even at the start, of the rejection of the Lord Jesus and the rejection of Joseph. But I think the main thing the Holy Spirit is saying to you and me tonight, the main reason that the Holy Spirit wrote these words and is speaking them to us tonight is that you and I need to have our faith deepened that God is sovereignly at work through history and he is in control of your life. That is what the Spirit is saying to you tonight. Now God's plan of salvation requires that the descendants of Abraham grow into a great nation and they take over the land of Canaan. And here, it seems like everything has gone backwards. At the start of chapter 37, we've got, not a nation, but there's 12 of them, and they're living in the land of Canaan. By the time we get to the end of this chapter, they've almost killed one of the sons, and he is a slave in Egypt of all places, as far away from Canaan as possible to get for them. 
And the family is just torn apart by murderous rage, stupidity, infighting and favouritism. On the surface, by the end of Genesis 37, God has failed miserably and his purposes have gone backwards, not forwards. But God is at work. And the great thing that the Spirit tells us through this chapter is that God is at work invisibly. Even when there is no great resolution from the story, even when we don't get God speak into the circumstances, he's not even mentioned in this chapter. And yet, and yet we know he is at work from the end of the story. You won't see his great footprints all over this chapter. Everything looks like it's going backwards and against him in this chapter. It looks like he's forgotten to turn up in this chapter. But subtly, subtly, when we look back, we see he is in control. He is at work, even though on the surface it looks like the very opposite. He is subtly working circumstances, subtly working coincidences, and he is whispering his promises in dreams, which is a huge encouragement Because very often, you and I cannot see evidence that God is at work in our lives. And worse still, there are times when it feels like we've gone backwards. It feels like five years ago I was closer to God. Five years ago I was more useful to him. And now, now it feels like things are in a worse mess. Now it feels like I've gone backwards. Now it feels like I'm further from being any use to God than I've ever been in my life. And we're tempted to give up. And we're tempted to doubt that God is really involved, that God really knows what he's doing. But our God is the God of Genesis 37. He is the God who brought his promised salvation through a messed up, dysfunctional reality TV family like this. A family that has rejected his ways in almost every way imaginable and are suffering the consequences. And yet, God is at work in that mess. So he can be at work in you and me. Our God is the God of Genesis 37. I may not be able to see any evidence of God's involvement in my life. I may feel like everything's going backwards. But God is the God of Genesis 37. I may wonder how God can be involved in what's happening in day-to-day reality in my life, but if God can work out and micromanage the movements of Midianite camels and wandering brats, then he can be involved in the circumstances and the details of your life too. Trust him. Trust him. The good God has not forgotten you. Trust him and don't expect it all to make sense right now. There's no point sitting there trying to work out, so why is this happening to me? Because God never promises he'll tell us that. Joseph couldn't work that out. He couldn't sit there in the slave market and think, okay, I've had this dream, so what's going on here? Well, I guess what's probably going to happen is maybe I'll be falsely accused in seven years of uh, sleeping with my master's wife and then thrown in prison where I might meet maybe some of Pharaoh's officials, and then I'll probably interpret some dreams for them. And then after that, I guess uh, Pharaoh will have some dreams, and then I could become Prime Minister of Egypt. Oh, obvious, really. I'll trust God. It doesn't work like that. Joseph trusts God. Joseph clings to God. And you and I need to learn to cling to God in the darkness. That's why these stories are in the Bible. 
They show us that just because things are going backwards, just because I can't see God at work, there's no reason to stop trusting him. And there's every reason to believe that he is evolved, even now. He's infinitely wise, and yes, he does know better than you or I. Trust the God of Genesis 37 this week. Trust him in the complexities, the uncertainties, the disappointments and the difficulties. Trust him because he is good and trust him because he will work out his purposes to bless. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this chapter where everything goes wrong. We thank you because it, it's such an encouragement to us when uh, so often the snapshot of our life uh, feels like things are in a mess, things are in a worse place. But we thank you for the subtle signs even here that you are at work. And we thank you for the encouragement of the raw material that you choose to use. We thank you that our past mistakes, uh, our sins, our foolishness, doesn't put us beyond being useful to you. And so we pray that we would learn to trust you. And trusting you, we would learn to obey you. Amen.